We pay particular attention to someone's last words. Uh, you can read collections of the last words of famous people. Uh, the last words of our loved ones are words that we are likely never to forget. And here in the first five verses of Second Samuel 23, we have the last words of the man who is named more frequently in the Bible than any other human character. Uh, these are not necessarily David's dying words, uh, but the last words that he spoke under the inspiration of God. They are his final prophecy. Uh, for us, uh, though, we're, we're not prophets. It, it might be the equivalent to what we write in our will. Even if we, we, we write our will a long time before we die, it's where the, we have the opportunity to say what we are dying believing in. It's an opportunity to say the words that we want remembered. And the significance of these last words of David ha have been recognised in the history of the church. John Neve, he was a Covenanter minister in New Mills in Ayrshire. Uh, when Charles II became king, he was exiled to, to the Netherlands. Uh, he died there in exile, uh, like a number of Covenanters. Uh, the Scottish Covenanter minister, John Livingston, died in the same city in, in Rotterdam about six months later. Uh, well, Neve, he preached 52 sermons on the first five verses of this chapter to his congregation in Ayrshire. Uh, the reformer Martin Luther wrote a little book on these verses. And Charles Spurgeon preached three times on verse 4 and twice on verse 5. And the reason people have paid so much attention to these verses is because of who David is talking about in them. We're looking ahead to the coronation of a king next month. And David too was looking forward to a coming king but a far greater king than Charles III, than David himself, or any other human king. But while the coming king that we're looking ahead to will be openly acknowledged as king in just a couple of weeks, David was looking much further ahead. Uh, through the Spirit here, he speaks about the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, both his, his first coming and his second coming. And with the help of the same spirit uh, by whom David spoke, uh, we want to consider these verses under three headings this evening. Uh, firstly, these verses tell us that the king is coming. The king is coming. How much reason did David have to be confident about the future? Well, based on how things had gone in his lifetime, there was much that could have discouraged David about the future. Think of some of the things that we've looked at since we resumed our, our sermons in Second Samuel halfway through this book. David's son Amnon had abused his half-sister Tamar before being murdered by his brother Absalom. Absalom had then launched a rebellion that led to thousands of people dying, including Absalom himself. 
while David is still alive, uh, having experienced all this in his family, the, the beginning of the book of First Kings tells us that, that another son, Adonijah, exalts himself and tries to set himself up as king rather than Solomon, who was David's choice of successor. Yes, David has been exalted as king by God, uh, initially just over one tribe, but now over all the tribes. There have been encouragements in David's reign, but there have also been plenty of discouragements. And looking to the future, the signs aren't positive that things will hold together once David is gone. In fact, God had told David through the prophet Nathan back in chapter 12 that the sword would never depart from his house. That on down the generations there would be trouble. So humanly speaking, there are plenty of reasons not to be confident about the future. In fact, God himself had told David that that things weren't going to be rosy once David was gone. But... Back in chapter 7, God had made David a promise that one of David's descendants would have a kingdom that would last forever, which was a promise about the coming of Jesus. And that promise, that covenant, is what gives David hope now. As he puts it here in verse 5, For he has made with me a covenant ordered in all things and secure. And even before we get into the the details, is that not both an example and an encouragement for us? Because what do we tend to base our hopes or fears for the future on? Well, we tend to base them on the present. Uh, We tend to base them on how things are going now. And that's true in any sphere of life. If things are going well in the present, we take that as a reason to be optimistic about the future. But if things are going badly... In the present, we take that as a reason to be pessimistic about the future. When I was living in Belfast, I went to a football match between Northern Ireland's youth team, their under-21s, and Scotland's. The game finished 2-0 to Northern Ireland. I didn't actually remember that scoreline. I had to look it up. The game was 18 years ago. But I knew that Northern Ireland must have won fairly easily because I remember one of the chants that night which was Scotland's futures looking grim. Uh, What was the logic behind the chants? Well, it was if if Scotland's under-21 team were being easily beaten by Northern Ireland, it didn't bode well for their adult team in a few years' time. And in the same way, if we were to judge the future of Christianity based on how things have been going lately, we could well conclude that the future's looking grim. Or if we were to do the same for our own lives, perhaps. Looking to the future, maybe things have been rough lately. We think, well, things are not going that well now. The future is looking grim. But what does God tell us to base our confidence for the future on? Is it on how things are going now? Or is it on his promises? Well, it's the second option. In these verses, David gives us a glorious vision of the future. And his, his confidence that this will happen is based not on his circumstances, but on God's promises. 
and it's an example for us. If we rely on what we can see with our eyes, we'll have plenty of reasons for discouragement. But what do we see if we look to God's promises? And particularly his promises about Jesus Christ, uh, which is what David is holding on to here. Well, we have Jesus' own words, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, We have the whole book of Revelation, which can be summed up in three words. The lamb wins. The lamb wins. Matthew Henry says, Suppose the church be diminished, distressed, disgraced and weakened by errors and corruptions, yea, almost extinct. Yet God has made a covenant with the church's head, the son of David, that he will preserve to him a seed, that the gates of hell shall never prevail against his house. Boys and girls, you you know what it is for animals to go extinct. That There used to be animals that we don't have anymore. Uh, There used to be dinosaurs that we don't have them anymore. There used to be dodos and woolly mammoths and we don't have them anymore. They went extinct. But the church will never go extinct, even if it looks as if it's going to happen because of God's promises. And that confidence we have about the future, it's not simply coming from David, but coming from God himself. The word oracle is used twice in verse 1. It's not a word we, we use too often, but it's a word that we find lots of times in the prophetic books in Scripture. And so it flags up that this is a prophecy. And in fact, Acts chapter 2, there the apostle Peter calls David a prophet. Acts 2.30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. In verse 2 of our chapter, David makes a massive claim that the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. And so God himself is the one telling us to fix our eyes on the one who is coming. Now, unlike David, we live in the days after Jesus has been born, crucified and resurrected. And yet our faith is still a forward-looking faith. Our faith is still a forward-looking faith. All that the Old Testament prophesied about Jesus wasn't fulfilled at his first coming. Some of it was, but for the rest of it, we're going to have to wait until his second coming. And these verses are God himself telling us to keep our eyes on Jesus and not give up. No matter how well or how badly things are going now. At the times in our lives when we don't understand what's happening, when we don't understand what God is doing, we need to remember that the King is coming. And when he comes, he will make all things right. And that should certainly put a a spring in our step and put strength in our bones because the King is coming. So that's the first thing we see this evening. The king is coming. But what sort of king will he be? And that brings us to our second point, which is the king is beautiful. The the king is beautiful. 
Who is David talking about in verse 3? Is he just giving general principles for how kings should act? Or is he speaking about a specific king to come? Well, verses 3 and 4 do give us general principles about kingship. Uh, uh, it gives us something we could pray it would be the case for Charles III. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. That is true of any earthly king who rules in the fear of God. But everything that comes beforehand in verses 1 and 2 is preparing us for a prophecy about a particular individual. We're told that these are David's last words. We're told twice that this is an oracle. David tells us in verse 2 that the Holy Spirit is speaking through him. Uh, Perhaps we should even see verses 2 and 3 as a reference to the whole trinity. We have the Holy Spirit in verse 2, and we have the God of Israel in verse 3, and we have the Rock of Israel. And uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 4 tells us, uh, speaking about another use of the word rock in the Old Testament, that the rock was Christ. So given that that build up in verses 1 and 2, I think we'd be right to expect more than just general principles for kingship here. Uh, We'd be right to expect David to be speaking of one particular coming king. On top of that, you have in verse 5 the reference back to the covenant. Uh, That covenant that God made with David in chapter 7 was about one specific individual. As Peter put it in Acts 2, David knew that God had sworn an oath to put one of his descendants on the throne. And so what we have in verses 3 and 4 are a picture of the true king, which is a picture that all human kings fall short of. A king is coming, verse 3 tells us, who will rule justly, but not just rule over Israel, but rule over men, over mankind, over the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. And he will rule in the fear of God. The end of verse 3 there, it's not saying that he will rule justly and he will rule in the fear of God as if they were two different things, as if it's possible to rule justly uh, but, but not rule in the fear of God. Rather, it's telling us that ruling justly means ruling in the fear of God and vice versa. That if someone rules in the fear of God, then they will rule justly. That's prophesied of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 11. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. How different the rulers we have today. What would it be like to have a king like this? A king ruling justly over men in the fear of God. What would it be like? Well, we're actually given three pictures here in verse 4. The first one is of the morning light dawning. Have you ever experienced a long, long night where you've been anxiously waiting for the morning to dawn? 
Perhaps after a long night of struggle, work, waiting, anxiety, fear or danger. And then the morning comes and it ushers in a new day and the fear and anxiety of the night disappear. That's what Jesus' rule will be like after the unjust, godless, self-interested rule that we experience on earth. During the past couple of weeks we've seen key figures in Scotland's ruling party arrested. We've seen the UK Deputy Prime Minister resign over bullying claims. Who knows what the week ahead will bring. For many people political corruption, incompetence and abuse of power simply make them angry. And anger is not a wrong reaction. It should make us angry to see that injustice and corruption but it should also make us long for a better king it should make us long for a better king Ralph Davis says that when he was growing up on a Sunday night they used to come home from church and have cheese in one form or another for supper and that grabbed my attention right away because we do the same thing But his dad would always take the last slice of cheese. Uh, No matter how how much the children might have been longing for it, their dad would always take it. And he would would explain why. He'd say, I never got enough cheese when I was a kid. He craved it because he hadn't experienced much of it. Deprivation stirred desire. And it's the same principle here. The kingdom is attractive because the king is attractive and the king is attractive because we have seen so little of this kind of ruler in what country of the world in what stage of history has there ever been a ruler so motivated by godly fear and so controlled by personal righteousness that his reign has revived and renewed his people If there have been examples, they have been few and far between. Surely every human leader falls short of this description. And it's the very lack of this in the world that leads us to pray, your kingdom come. We've seen the the kingdoms of, of earth. And we look at them and all we can say is your kingdom come. We're longing for the morning to come after a long, dark night. There's two other illustrations in verse 4 which fill out the picture a bit. And the first is of the sun shining on a cloudless morning. We've had a bit of that this past week, haven't we? And what has it said to us? It said summer is coming. Yes, it will be back to normal for a while in between, but summer is coming. And one day the sun of righteousness will shine and there will be no clouds to obstruct his healing rays. The final picture of his reign in verse 4 is as rain. His reign, his rule, will be like the, the rain that falls and makes the grass to sprout. Unlike other rulers who tramp people down like a heavy boot on the grass, the Lord Jesus will not break a bruised reed or trample down people underneath him. This is our King. 
like the dawn, like the sun shining, like the rain falling. And it's not just a future picture. Through his word and by his spirit, his light is already dawning on us. We've already begun to feel his reviving rays. The Bible talks elsewhere in the books of Joel and James about the early rain and the latter rain. And even now we are experiencing the early rain. We have begun to experience a refreshing, reviving, rejuvenating power that we won't experience anywhere else. Is that not your experience if you become a Christian recently? It's like the morning light has dawned, the sun is shining without clouds, and refreshing showers are beginning to sprinkle the parched earth. And if we know this King, if, if, it, if we've experienced the sun shining on us, if we've been refreshed by the rain that he sends, then there should be something different about us. If the King is beautiful, if there's something attractive about him, then there should be something attractive about us as well. Proverbs 4.18 says, The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The contrast is, like, is with the way of the wicked, which is like deep darkness. Your life and mine should be a contrast to those around us, and more so as the years go on. And not simply because of what we don't do. Is Jesus an attractive, beautiful king because of what he doesn't do or because of what he does? Well, he is a beautiful contrast to the rulers of this world because he doesn't do some of the things that they do. But above all, it is his sheer goodness that makes him most beautiful. His positive righteousness and holiness. When it comes to ourselves, do people see that positive righteousness and holiness? Or are we merely marked by the negative, by the things we don't do? What does positive righteousness and holiness look like? Well, it doesn't have to be anything particularly complicated, but simply living out the implications of the gospel in our everyday lives, our work, our relationships and so on. One of the speakers at the conference I was at during the week was Paul Levy. He, he put it like this in a recent article. He said, God's good design for the family is wonderfully attractive. Sometimes I think a Christian family just living a normal, faithful, God-honoring lifestyle with a husband loving his wife, a wife submitting to her husband and children honoring their parents is more radically countercultural than anything else in our culture. Whatever your calling is, simply living it out wholeheartedly as a Christian can really make those around you sit up and take notice. As they see less and less of it in society as a whole, the more attractive a wholehearted Christian consistent life will be. The Psalms talk about the beauty of holiness. Uh, we see that in Jesus and others, others should be able to see it in us. The beauty of holiness. Yes, the most we'll ever be is a candle while he is the sun. 
But what is true of the king should be true of his people as well. The king is coming. The king is beautiful. Thirdly and finally, the king's enemies will be consumed. The same news can have the opposite effect on different people. Think of the recent leadership contest to decide the new first minister of Scotland. It was effectively a two-horse race. And when the winner was announced, some people were delighted, especially if it meant a job for them in the cabinet. Others weren't quite so thrilled, particularly if it meant losing a place in government. Those who had criticised or opposed the new first minister during the campaign soon found out how much that decision would cost them. And here as well, the same news that is joyful for many is not good news for others. The king's coming is good news for his friends, but spells disaster for his enemies. The king's coming is good news for his friends, but spells disaster for his enemies. Again and again, the Bible divides the human race into two categories and only two. Those who are for Christ and those who are against him. In verse 6, those described as worthless men, uh, those with no time for this coming king, are described as thorns that are thrown away. They are prickly. They cause trouble on earth. The same word for thorn is used way back in Genesis 3 to describe the effects of the fall. That's how thorns came into this world. Both literal thorns and also uh, metaphorical thorns on believers. But one day we're going to live in a renewed Eden. Uh, The new heavens and the new earth will be like Eden only better and there won't be any thorns there. Why not? Because God has said that nothing unclean will ever enter it. And because at the end of verse 7 they'll be utterly consumed with fire. As John the Baptist said of Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And the reason that hasn't happened already to many people around us is because God is being so patient with them just as he was so patient with us but one day his patience will be at an end we've seen in recent weeks various rebellions against king david and what what a wicked thing those were david wasn't perfect but he was god's chosen king he was a man of humble origins the the son of jesse here in verse 1 But also, verse 1, God had raised him on high. The God of Jacob had anointed him. And so people had no right to resist his authority. And if that is true of David, how much more is it true of Jesus Christ? He humbled himself to come to this earth at all, never mind to be born into a poor family. But as a result of his death on the cross, God raised him on high. He was the anointed of the God of Israel. He is the the true sweet psalmist of Israel. He spoke through David and he is the one who leads our praise. 
According to the book of Hebrews, he's the one speaking in Psalm 22, where the writer says, In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And of course, Jesus wasn't just foreshadowed by David. He is the one David is speaking about specifically in these, his last words. And if David could say anything to you this evening, he would say, do you know my king? This king is coming to put all things right. And so you don't need to fear or fret. This king is beautiful. Let the failure of earthly leaders make you long for him all the more. And this king will consume his enemies. The only way to escape that never-ending fire is to put your trust in him while there's still time. And why would you not? Why would you not? Because to know him is to know the morning light dawning after the darkest night. It's to see the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. And it's to experience the first showers of rain after a long and deadly drought. And so we say with David, will he not cause to prosper all my salvation and all my desire? Amen. Well, David's son Solomon uh, remembered David's last words and picked up on some of them in Psalm 72. Psalm 72. Psalm 72, and noticing especially the middle of verse 4 on page 155. Like rain on moan grass may he come, like showers on earth that fall. Again, it's a prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ. As we sing here of what his rain will be like, and which, by his grace, we can already experience in part. So Psalm 72, the first six verses, uh, the tune is number 80, singing about the reign of Jesus Christ. We'll stand to sing praise. <laughs> 